May the Lord be pleased to answer our prayer this morning. Let's open together, please, to Exodus, the 16th chapter, as we think about the manna in the wilderness. God has committed himself to provide what his children need so as to care for them in the center of his will. Is it not interesting that oftentimes God's provision itself becomes a test to us? I think of the dear lady, elderly, who was unable to care for herself and who was placed into a nursing home a retirement center, whatever the proper name is these days for such a place, where she could be cared for. There her laundry was done for her, her meals were done for her, brought to her room, and she was tenderly, lovingly cared for. But there was a price. She had to give up some of her things. Not everything would fit in that room. She had to give up some of her independence. The neighborhood that she had known for so many years was no longer hers. Her privacy, her own cooking, she no longer could taste that, and it tasted a lot better than that institutional food. But you see, God provided for her, but that provision became a test. And almost every time that I visited her before she died, she complained. God's provision became a test for her. So often that's true. I talked recently with some dear friends of mine with whom it was my privilege to work on a staff several years ago. They left our staff and went to work with the National Youth Ministry and were missionaries. And uh, as is typical of some missionaries at least, they had a difficult time raising their support and keeping that support level up. Often they sent out letters uh, expressing the dire circumstances they were in. Their car with 200,000 miles on it had given out and now they were going to have to do something in a hurry. You've had those kind of letters too. Well, during the last 10 years, she has been working on a series of children's books in her spare time. She had a concept that she began working with, which she called Christopher Church Mouse. She put together some stories, tapes, and began to send that out to publishers and was rejected 17 times. That got so bad, her husband began to hide the rejection slips under the seat of the car until he felt that she could take another one. And then she got some counsel from someone who has published a good deal, and she followed it and sent it in. And she uh, is now under contract for 12 books. The first two were published this summer, and they went through over 100,000 copies of it in two and a half weeks. God has provided for their needs financially all of a sudden because of the royalties that she receives from the books. I doubt that I'll get any more letters saying we need a new car because they really are cared for pretty well. And she has about uh, 14 more books that the publisher hasn't even contracted yet. 
So she's cared for, he's cared for until their retirement, I'm fairly sure. But I would predict that their newfound prosperity will be a test to them of a different sort. God's provision often is a test to us, and so it was with ancient Israel. They had camped at Elam for a period of time, and from there they set out. All the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. (laughs) Oh, brother. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Oftentimes God's provision is a test. Tests are a part of life, aren't they? You remember those tests you had in school? Some of you are still there. I feel sorry for you. I remember the stress and the pain of those tests very well. But that's part of schooling. Did you ever audition for a choir or for a part in a play? That's a test. Or you think about the tryouts for athletic teams or the, the uh, tests that you have to take for some employment opportunities. Obtaining a driver's license requires a test. But the most important tests in life are the spiritual ones that come from God. Too often, if you're like me, you don't realize you're in the middle of a test until you're through it. And then in retrospect, you look back and you say, boy, I wish I had seen that at the time. I wish I had responded this way or that. We're all the same way. Well, the manna which God provided for the children of Israel was his provision for them. In recalling this incident, I pray that God will open our hearts to the lessons which he would teach us about his provision for our need too. The first lesson that I see in our scripture today is this, that the manna was provided by grace. The manna that God gave them was in response not to their faith, not to their being good and righteous, but it was in response to actually to their unbelief and their grumbling. The manna was provided by the grace of God. God provided not only manna, but he provided meat. And the fact is that they deserved neither of these because of themselves. God is here showing to us that when he provides for our needs, it is an act of grace on his part. Because you see, God must always deal with mankind according to grace or judge us. For we are an undeserving race of sinners. 
Sometimes I hear people say, well, I wish God would be fair. Friend, I'm glad God isn't fair. For if God were fair, we would get what we deserved. I'm glad that God is gracious and that he gives us what we do not deserve. Here against the dark background of rebellion and complaint, God's grace is all the more vivid and striking. As the book of Romans says, where sin abounded, grace did what? Much more abound. God's grace is sufficient for any sinner. And as a matter of fact, God's grace is his only hope. The manna that we see here is actually a picture or, to use another more technical term, it is a type of God's provision in His Son, Jesus Christ. Occasionally in the Old Testament, there are such striking and clear pictures of Jesus Christ that it's referred to in the New Testament in terms of Him and His ministry. Bible commentators call those types of Christ pictures of Christ. We know this is a type of Christ because of what Jesus himself said, and I'd like you to turn with me there to the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter. Jesus has just performed one of his most amazing signs. It is the feeding of a great multitude of people. And following that occasion, there comes some teaching from our Lord, not on that same day, but the next day, as the multitudes came to him. Jesus says in verse 26, in a confrontational manner, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because because you saw signs, rather, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. In other words, God had authenticated, God had established the authority of his Son. They said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Notice Jesus had said to them, Do the work. They said, What are the works? Jesus says in verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So you see, work is not something that they would do in the sense of some effort or merit on their part. It was a matter of faith. That is the work of God. And they said to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. That is bread that will truly meet your need, truly satisfy. 
For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Our Lord is saying here that God's will is not only that he save those who believe in him, but that he preserve them, and that one day they be raised from the dead by his power. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on that on the last day. And so our Lord Jesus himself says, I am the manna. I am the bread from heaven given by the Father. And he says, he who beholds me and believes on me, to him I give eternal life and preservation and resurrection. Well, if you'll skip on down to verse 48, he says again, I am the bread of life your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. It was temporal bread, you see. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever, and the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You see, they did not understand the spiritual implication of what Jesus was saying. They thought only in, in physical, material terms. Jesus therefore said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now you can imagine how the Jews might have responded. In fact, they did respond to this. They did not understand what he was saying. And after all, they had a law in Leviticus that said, you shall not eat blood. And here's a man claiming to be the bread from heaven who says, you must eat my blood and, or eat my flesh and drink my blood. They could not put all that together. And still there are people today who can't put all this together and who say that Jesus is here saying that in communion, what they call the Mass, you must eat his body and drink his blood if you would have eternal life. Is that what Jesus is saying? Not at all. Not at all. What Jesus is saying here is that just as we eat and drink food to appropriate it for our physical needs, so we must partake of him in a spiritual sense to meet our spiritual needs. We have to appropriate him by faith. You say, well, where does faith enter in here? Well, notice back in verse 47, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes 
has eternal life. Jesus equates believing to eating his flesh and drinking his blood in verse 54. So he is not talking about some physical act. But he is saying that to believe on him in a saving sense is spiritually what eating and drinking is to us physically. It is an appropriation of a provision that is made for our need. Jesus Christ is the living bread. The true bread that meets the real needs in the hearts and souls of men and women. That belief that Jesus is talking about here is not mere intellectual understanding of him. It is not an awareness of the facts about him. But it is an appropriation of him. That's why earlier in the Gospel of John, belief is equated with receiving the Son of Man. It means to embrace, to take to oneself this truth. And to go beyond the point of saying that he is the Savior. To be able to say he is my Savior. I take him as my own. He is the provision for our spiritual needs. Just as God provided manna for the children of Israel by grace. So God has by grace provided for us that true bread from heaven. There are several parallels that we can point out between the manna and Jesus. In the first place, it is a gift from God. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The bread from heaven is a gift to us. And then it is heavenly in its origin. It comes from heaven. The manna in the wilderness was not a concoction of the, the Jewish chefs. It was not imported from Egypt through the wilderness, but it came down from heaven. And so it points to the heavenly origin of Jesus Christ. He is not a mere man, but he is the Son of God come from heaven. The manna was miraculous in its coming. It simply appeared there. And so our Savior was miraculous in his coming, being conceived of the Holy Spirit within the womb of Mary. His birth, unlike any other birth in the history of the world, and necessarily so to preserve him from the inherited sin of Adam. And he was preserved from the sin of Mary by the Holy Spirit within her womb. Miraculous in coming. The manna was mysterious in nature. They awoke in the morning when the dew had lifted. Left behind was this substance. They said, what is it? Which is our English word manna, essentially. What is it? And it's described to us as being white or grayish in color as being soft and round and small. And it's described as having the taste of honey on wafers. Not bad. Or cakes baked with oil. Good pancakes. You don't get much better than that. That's what it was like. 
And they were able to touch it and to gather it. Now, there have been various natural explanations for this. None of them fit. None of them do. In his book, The Bible is History, Keller says that it is the result of uh, the tamarisk tree over in that part of the world. And it is true that there is a substance that comes from the tamarisk tree during the summer months of July and August, basically, each year. But it's described differently in the Bible than what the tamarisk tree produces. And furthermore, it was not just two months a year that it was available to them. It was for 40 years, every morning. I mean, that's some bakery. And so God provided this mysterious substance for them. And I would say to you that our Savior, likewise, is mysterious in His nature Can you understand how God, the infinite God, could unite himself to sinless humanity without compromising either his deity or his humanity? Fully God and fully man at the same time, that is a mystery. The apostle says great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. That is a mystery. And then the manna came in the darkness. As the people slept, it appeared. And so our Savior came into a world of moral darkness that he might be there, here, to meet the needs of sinful man. The manna was a provision of the grace of God. And my friend, Jesus Christ is fully a provision of the grace of God for every sinner who will believe on him. And then I notice a second lesson. It is this, that the manna was easily available. Going back now again to the book of Exodus, in the 16th chapter, let us skip on down to the 13th verse. So it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp. Now we're not talking about the quails this morning. I don't like quails as well as I like pancakes. So I decided to talk about the manna instead. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread which Yahweh has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it every man as much as he should eat. You shall take an omer, a piece, according to the number of persons each of you has in his tent. An omer being about two quarts. And the sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much and some little. And when they measured measured it with an omer, He who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat. And Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until morning. But they did not listen to Moses. And some left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and became foul. And Moses was angry with them, understandably so. And they gathered it morning by morning, every man as much as he should eat. But when the sun grew hot, it would melt. Now it came about on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. 
When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until morning. Here we understand that this was a, uh, a substance that could be baked or boiled or used in a variety of ways. It became to them a basic staple for their diet. They did have other things to eat, by the way. They had large herds of animals. And undoubtedly they were able to procure, and in fact the Bible says they did procure food along the way from some of the nations that they came to contact with. But this became the potatoes, or this became the wheat, or whatever you want to say, of their diet. This was the basic staple, the manna that God provided. And so they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And it came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out together, but they found none. God closed the cafeteria that morning. This is a record of the first blue laws in the Bible. They closed everything down on, on the Sabbath. And then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days. On the sixth day, remember, or rather, remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel named it manna. And it was like coriander seed, small and round, white. And its taste was like wafers with honey. The manna was easily available to the people. They did not have to take a long journey to get it. It was not placed on a mountaintop somewhere where they had to climb up and bring it back. They did not have to send for it. But God served it right at their tents. So all that they had to do was to get up in the morning, go outside of their tent, and begin to pick up the manna. It was readily available. From this I would point out that Jesus Christ likewise is available to all and to any who will call upon him. Our Savior has not separated himself from man by rituals, by saints or popes or churches, but rather he stands at the door of the heart and he knocks, asking to gain entrance. He is available to any who will call upon him. For whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My friend, today, if you have not yet received him, he is here and he is available for you. But the fact is that there are some to whom he is not available. He is not available to every person in the world because there are many who have not yet even heard his name. They cannot call upon him of whom they have not heard. And they cannot hear unless someone tell them, unless a preacher be sent to them. That is the reason that we seek to make him known. That's the reason some 60 of you were present yesterday for the seminar and evangelistic Bible studies. Because you want to be equipped 
that those in your neighborhood might surely have the opportunity to hear that they might believe, that Jesus might be available to them. That's the reason others of you are active in your witness, that Jesus might be available, presented to them. That's the reason we're having a missions festival in a couple of weeks, so that we can understand again and remind ourselves the importance of getting the message of Jesus Christ to the uttermost parts of the earth, especially to those places where he is not available today. Understand that they are lost and without hope of salvation until the message of Christ be brought to them. And then they have available that living manna. And then thirdly, I notice in our study that the manna had to be gathered this was really the test of God's provision. God said every day in the morning, every day in the morning, if they waited till afternoon, the manna had melted and they went hungry. And it had to be done every day. Some of them didn't believe that. Moses got angry at them. They didn't believe it. They tried to store it for the next day and it became foul and wormy. There were no artificial preservatives in the manna. So every day, early in the day, they had to go out and gather it. That was God's test. God wanted to know, as he provided this for them, would they obey him? And as we have seen, some did not learn that lesson early. You know, part of the process of God in maturing us is the test that he puts us through. God graciously provides for our needs. But then he puts us through tests and trials. Will we do what he tells us to do? Will we obey him? Many of us, indeed all of us from time to time, are like those people who tried to hold over the man until the next day. We have to learn the lesson the hard way. If we do not do what God tells us to do, there are consequences. In this case, it was the, the fact that the manna was unedible. It was not usable. There are consequences to disobedience. Now, parents try to instill that into the lives of their children. Boy, it's tough. It's tough to get them to understand it. It's tough to be consistent at it. But children need to learn... And when they don't obey, there are consequences. And often those consequences are the natural ones of their disobedience. That's the best kind of consequence because it teaches obedience. We are the children of God. And when you and I do not obey what he tells us to do, then he allows us to suffer the consequences until we learn to obey. The manna here was on the ground. But it was no good on the ground. It had to be gathered and it had to be eaten. The point is that it had to be appropriated by each person for his own good, his own response. And so I return again to that emphasis, the fact that each person must make his own provision of Christ. He must trust in the Savior that God has given on his behalf. It is not good enough if the husband or wife has done it. 
The other spouse likewise must do it. It is not good if the parents have done it for the children. The children themselves must believe. Each person must make provision. The manna had to be gathered. And so the living bread, Jesus Christ, must be appropriated by personal faith. And then the manna, I notice, provided for their need throughout the pilgrimage. According to verse 35, the sons of Israel ate the manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. What an abundant supply this was from God. Now, I don't know who was back there with the scale in those days, but someone has calculated that this was about 4,500 tons of manna a day. Remember, God is feeding in excess of 2 million people every day with this stuff. Or to put it a different way, and again, I'm not sure who measured this, but I guess someone smart enough did. It was over a million tons each year. And if you put it into railroad cars, it would have been a train of 240 cars arriving at the camp of Israel every day for 40 years. That was God's provision. And it was all that they needed throughout their pilgrimage. And so I want to say to you that the living bread, Jesus Christ, is all that you and I are going to need throughout all of our pilgrimage. All of our need is met in Him. He is the all-sufficient Savior. We find what we need in Him not only for our sin, but also for our disappointments, our questions, our fears in life. He is all that we need. As we spiritually feed upon Him, we find sustenance for life's journey. How is it that we spiritually feed on this living bread? Well, of course, we do that at the moment of salvation when we partake of Him. But then throughout our lives, we are called upon to feed upon Him and to find our sufficiency in Jesus Christ. How do we do that? Well, we do that by going to this book, which is the fullness of the revelation of Him. As He is the living Word, so this is the written Word. This book, the Word of God, is the bread for our souls as we find Jesus Christ revealed in its pages. Our practice needs to be daily coming to the book and partaking of it so that we may spiritually partake of Jesus Christ. There are sweets in this book that can be found only by regular and persistent eating of it. As Isaac Watts said, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. The heavenly sweets that God provides for us are found here in these pages. But very frankly, there are a couple of dangers that you and I face as we think about this. The first is that we allow our fellowship with Christ, the true bread, to become a careless fellowship. For when we do that, our spiritual experience becomes sour and unappetizing. Spiritual knowledge that is not applied to life, that is not partaken of, 
eventually breeds worms and it spoils the life. How tragic to meet a Christian who knows all of the answers, who can win the Bible trivia game, but whose life is sour and bitter, not tasty and poisoned. And not only does he poison himself, but he poisons those around him. When our fellowship with Jesus Christ becomes careless, then our spiritual experience becomes sour and unappetizing. That is a danger that all of us face. Most of us here today know more than we're practicing. Now, in one sense, that's normal, because we have to know it before we can practice it. But the danger is that we allow just the head knowledge of spiritual facts to substitute for experiencing fellowship with Jesus Christ. The Bible was not given to us merely as a book of facts to know. It was given that we might know the person that it reveals. Do you know him? Because of your regular, daily being in the Word. And as you know Him, are you seeking that the Spirit of God would enable you to be like Him? Are you putting to practice in your life what you're learning in the Word? And the second danger that I can think of is growing dissatisfied with what God has given us in Christ. You say, oh, how could that ever be? It can happen to us just as it happened with the children of Israel. Excited they were in Exodus 16, but you come over to Numbers chapter 11 and you find that they were absolutely up to here with the manna. They said, we are tired of this stuff. And so it can be for the Christian. We become dissatisfied with what God has given us in Christ. And like the children of Israel who looked back to Egypt and they said, oh, that we had some of that fish. That we had some of those leeks and onions and the garlic. They longed for that diet of the world again. For the moment, they didn't care about their liberty. The important thing was the fun and the taste that they had in bondage. So it can be with us, folks. We can look back to the world when we were enslaved to sin, when we were in bondage to it, and we say, oh, I wish I could go back and have some of that fun again. And we become dissatisfied with what God has provided us in Jesus Christ. That turns us into grumbling Christians just as it turned the Israelites into grumbling, complaining people. And they faced the displeasure of God as surely as we shall. Are you finding in your Christian experience the sweetness and the freshness of Christ? Or has your Christian life and experience somehow turned on you so that today, quite honestly, it's sour? It's breeding worms. It's poisoned. It's fouled. 
It's boring. That can happen any one of us, any one of us. And when we recognize that it has, our need is to immediately acknowledge it, confess it, and to throw out that manna that has soured and to come to the Lord afresh that we might have that new provision, fresh manna. Some of you have had the experience of losing loved ones. And when that happens, you begin to go back and look for things that happened or letters that were written or things that were noticed by that loved one shortly before he or she died. When my mother died a year ago, I was looking around the kitchen where she died. And over on the refrigerator, there was a poem that she had put up with one of those magnetic things. And here's what it said. I got up early one morning and hustled right into the day. I had so much to accomplish that I didn't have time to pray. Problems just rumbled about me, and heavier came each task. Why doesn't God help me, I wondered. He answered, you didn't ask. I tried to come into God's presence. I used all my keys at the lock. God gently and lovingly chided, my child, you didn't knock. I wanted to see joy and beauty, but the day toiled on gray and bleak. I wondered why God didn't show me. He said, but you didn't seek. I woke up early this morning and paused before entering the day. I had so much to accomplish that I had to take time to pray. Is that the way you begin your day? Coming to the Lord for fresh manna? Saying, bread of heaven, feed me today. Not for yesterday, not for tomorrow, for today. I need fresh manna. And Lord, I bow my knees and I open the book. Speak to me. Feed my soul. Let's bow together. Did you begin this morning on your knees? Taking time to pray, to seek the Lord? Has the manna of your life grown foul because you've been careless in your Christian experience? Or has your Christian life become distasteful to you? You're dissatisfied because you're looking back at the world and you think, you think that the fun in the world is better and the joy of knowing the Savior. Dear friend, these are heinous sins in the sight of God, if these things be so. And none of us is beyond them. To whatever extent we need to apply this to our lives, 
and come to the Lord in confession and repentance. May we do that now. O bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed us, feed us till we want no more and we want nothing else beside you, the true manna. Before I close the service, I wonder if there's someone here who needs to trust the Savior. Spiritually, you're hungry. Indeed, you're starving. Jesus is God's gracious provision for you, for your sins. He died for you and rose again from the dead. If you will today partake of Him, that is, if you will believe on Him in a saving way, if you will receive Him and take Him as your own, He will become all that you need for your pilgrimage in this life and will take you safely to heaven. Will you trust Him today? Father, thank You for providing for us what we could not provide for ourselves. Thank You for applying this Word to our lives and may we go from here determined that we shall seek You daily and early that we might have fresh manna for each day with all of its cares and busyness. Keep our priorities right and our affections heavenly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.